On today's episode, what Brody has learned from proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Hey, welcome back. We are talking about high hamstring tendinopathy today. We have we're continuing our series what discussing what I have learned as I've gone through several running injuries in the past and um, this by no means is no exception. The high hamstring tendinopathy is super common with a lot of runners that I work with and yes, I have dealt with this myself in the past. Um, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this, what I'm calling the one-two punch, um, the you know, the solo episodes where I'm teaching what I've learned myself. And then uh, later in the week, I do an interview with someone who teaches me a lot of things and hopefully teaches you a lot of things as well. So I'm really enjoying this combination and we'll continue for pretty much as long as um, I go through a list of injuries that I've had, which turns out it's quite a lot. And it's, it's good to illustrate that everyone makes mistakes and what is what the difference is from every single mistake that I've made, what I have learned and what I'm now applying in the future for what I have learned. Hopefully you're doing the same because, you know, runners do learn from their mistakes, or most of us do anyway. It's recognizing the lessons and recognizing uh, perhaps training errors, perhaps being too motivated, too driven sometimes, perhaps it's misconceptions or lack of knowledge or just not implementing the right knowledge. So yeah, very important that we recognize this and we apply it moving forward to reduce our risk of injury in the long run. If you are a new listener, welcome. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. I usually have the action, the call to action of going back to season one and listening to the first 10 episodes, which covers the universal principles that every runner needs to know. But I've got a new one today. My new one is if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, please do so. Once you subscribe to the podcast, what happens is you instantly get notified when a new episode comes out. So you don't need to constantly keep going back to the podcast and seeing what episodes are out. And if you look at the title and you really uh, you think it'll be interesting, it's automatically on your phone and you can download it and away you go. If you don't, if it's a title that doesn't particularly interest you, you can just leave it. And then the new, a new notification the next week or the next episode will come out and it's just easier for you. So you don't have to constantly remind yourself to keep going back. So if you can, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. Last episode, we talked about patellar tendinopathy. Uh, the lessons that I learned from that, uh, just a quick little recap. 
lesson number one, your weak links will resurface. Don't just modify your activities so that your symptoms subside. Don't just continuously avoid these aggravating factors. We need to try and tackle your weak links head on because as soon as you change up your routine, as soon as you try and do something new, that injury will resurface. The, le- the second lesson I learned that um, was the effectiveness of isometrics and applying that to a tendinopathy. Lesson number three, that we don't just need to rest and wait for the pain to get to zero. And some of these will carry over really nicely into today's lesson. But before I do my um, 5K recap, uh, as I've talked the last couple of weeks, I've now got a new running goal to try and run 5Ks in under 20 minutes and the training's still going well. What I have found has really worked is I've started to combine training sessions into one day and it allows me an extra one to two days a week of complete rest, which is allowing my legs to feel really fresh. I have noticed looking back over the last couple of months that when I do a long run or when I do most of my runs, my hamstrings, my calves, sometimes my quads, they just feel really tight. They just feel like a cramp's about to come on. They just don't feel that fresh. But I do work out five, six days a week and I do deliberately focus that one day a week should be complete rest. And some days just be arm day or in the gym, that sort of thing. But I have made a conscious effort to have more recovery days and squash some of my strength and running days together, which has been really effective. So on a day where, let's just say I run on a Monday and then I do a leg workout on the Tuesday, instead I'm running in the morning and I'm doing my leg workout at night and then the next day is followed by complete rest. So I'm having more rest days and I'm feeling a lot more refreshed. So that's something that I've implemented that's been new. Um, but something's completely new the last three or four days is I now have a little bit of foot pain (laughs) and it's kind of in my midfoot. And as soon as I get pain in the midfoot, I instantly think here comes a stress fracture. I haven't had stress fractures in the past, but I have been told that, well, from my studies, I learned that it starts with just feeling a bit of tightness and just this nagging kind of achy tightness, which kind of is what it feels like. And it does I guess, kind of fit a pattern. This is just my thought process. It has, I have increased my speed trying to get to this 5k PB, which means that my ground reaction force is slightly higher and I do contact in my midfoot with my natural running action anyway. So that might slightly increase my risk of a stress fracture in the midfoot. But I am conscious of the fact that when I, the day one that I started noticing this, which is only four days ago, uh, the day before I did do some, calf raises and I went heavier on my calf raises on the step in minimalist shoes. And I did feel like maybe I twisted my foot a little bit during one of the up phases of that. So maybe I've just tweaked or strained one of the little muscles in my feet. That's another diagnosis, but I need to make smarter decisions moving forward. So I'm not ignoring these symptoms. I'm paying attention day in, day out. And over the last four days, it hasn't got any worse. I I wouldn't say it's got better, but I'm starting to wear supportive shoes throughout the day, so I'm not walking around in bare feet. I did go for a run yesterday just to try it out. I did wear supportive shoes, my most supportive shoes for my run yesterday because I know that I need to somewhat rest that area. I'm not completely resting, still staying active. And today I actually did like a resistance training. So I did a little bit of a workout where I did um, a round of 
chin-ups, push-ups, skipping with my shoes and uh, with my supportive shoes and box jumps. And this was all just done at home. And every jumping that I did, so the skipping and the box jumps was double leg. So it wasn't single leg. So I wasn't putting a lot of pressure through that foot. I wasn't spiking too much pressure through that foot and I'll see how it goes tomorrow. So being cautious of it, taking some load off with wearing supportive shoes throughout the day, not focusing on anything single leg, not focusing on any power or any heavy requirements through that foot and we'll just pay attention over the next um, you know, couple of days, week or so and I'll keep you updated. Hopefully it just resolves on its own. But this is what it this is what the Run Smarter podcast is all about. It's recognizing symptoms that do arise because injuries are unavoidable. But it's making those smart decisions day one, day two, day three, so that those symptoms reduce. We get over them a lot quicker and we're back to running at what we want to. That's the philosophy of the podcast and that's uh, why I'm sharing my experiences. All right, (laughs) that's a very, very long intro. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Um, so if we listened uh, last episode around the patellar tendinopathy, still early in my running career, and I got through the half marathon fine, um, I, I'm not sure if I told you, but I was originally planning for a half marathon with my sister, but because I started getting quite fit quite quickly, I decided to change that half marathon that was in October and convert it to a full marathon. And so that's within, it was eight, eight to 10 months of me running. So it was um, not unachievable, but then I decided to do the half marathon in July and see how I went and then progress on f- through that, which is probably too much of a jump now looking back on it. But um, I did have a few niggles through the patella tendon and through the calves, that sort of thing. Um, but got through it unscathed, relatively unscathed. And once I completed the full marathon, I wanted to keep my body guessing. That was in October. Moving into summer, I wanted to try doing some triathlons. And this is where the high hamstring tendinopathy arose. And it was due to perhaps doing too much um, too soon and working out that doing the sprint work, which I'll talk about in a second, doing a lot of the sprint work because the triathlon's a lot shorter, uh, potentially caused this flare-up or this tendinopathy. Before I continue further, I will recommend, if you haven't already, you can revisit or listen to a few other tendon episodes that I do have. So, um, I've got a list here. So episode 21 is talking tendons, tendinopathy 101. If you're not too sure about tendinopathy, how it behaves, why it reacts, please go back to that episode because I'm going to assume this is kind of prior knowledge for a lot of people and um, move straight into what I've learned with a little bit more advanced kind of um, teachings, you could call it. So go back to episode 21 where we talk about the original like kind of tendinopathy principles. Episode 22 focuses on tendinopathy rehab and prevention. And then episode 23 talks specifically about um, hamstring, Achilles and gluteal tendinopathy. If you want some extra credit, (laughs) um, uh, 10 episodes after that, so episode 33, I interview Marika Lowe and 
the title is Why Your Hamstring Tendinopathy Isn't Getting Better. So go back to those episodes. First of all, (laughs) I looked back at trying to find these episodes and I found that in Apple Podcasts, tendinopathy is misspelt. (laughs) There's a spelling error there, um, which I think I fixed back in Lipsyn, like through my um, things, but it doesn't seem to have changed in Apple I, uh, Apple podcast. So I looked through, I'm like, oh, that's spelt wrong. Why didn't anyone tell me? Why, has, why hasn't anyone said it to date? So um, sp- uh, spell checking isn't my strong suit. So you'll probably see a lot of spelling errors, especially in the, not necessarily in the titles, hopefully not like that one, but most often in like, say the um, descriptions. Uh, so yep, not my strong suit, but yeah, I'll, I've come to accept that. Go back to those episodes if you haven't listened to them. Um, so I'll assume that's kind of prior knowledge and we'll talk about what I have now learnt, my three lessons for high hamstring tendinopathy. Uh, okay. So number one, the first lesson that I've learnt is the importance or what's such a high impact that speed has. And going back to my story, training for a marathon, I was fit. I felt quite resilient after getting through that marathon, I felt like I was quite a strong runner and it just goes to show that as soon as you start implementing some sort of speed work, that these, these injuries still might occur. Even if you train, if you're built for a marathon, if you've got the marathon capacity, as soon as you back off and start doing some sprint work, these might arise. So yeah, I, I, there are some studies done. Um, Tim, Dawn, I don't know what the, can't remember what the year of the study was. Um, maybe 2016. Um, I have it actually, I think I have it up here. That's it. Uh, bear with me here. I'm just going to scroll through. I've got the title right in front of me, 2012. So in 2012, um, Tim Dawn had, and other colleagues published this paper. The title of the paper was muscular strategy shift in human running dependence of running speed on the hip and ankle muscle performance. So did a really nice job of looking at the force requirements of different muscles at different speeds. And there are certain muscles in particular, to say the calves that have a huge demand, but it doesn't necessarily change too much with speed. Those like six to eight times your body weight, especially through the soleus, six to eight times your body weight pretty much starts even at relatively low levels of speed. So it's still working at quite a high amount. The hamstrings, however, just significantly jump up, jump up, jump up, jump up the more, the faster and faster you run. It just goes through stages where it just ramps up, ramps up, ramps up. And if you can try and imagine, this is what I like to envision, the amount of force that's required for your hamstrings, every single step that you take, if you increase your speed and let's just say that that hamstring goes from just like a slow jog to a fast run. That's almost like three to four times what it's usually doing. And that's three to four times the force every single step. And then you times that step by tens of thousands of times, depending how far you're running. And that's a significant accumulation of load compared to what it's used to doing. And so that's why we need to really pay attention to that if we are changing speed. We do it just like we do mileage, just like we do weekly mileage. We do it for every other component. We want to make sure that we introduce it slowly. We want to make sure that we introduce it with minute steps. And we want to make sure that we introduce it so that 
the body adapts and gets stronger. These are back to our universal principles in season one. So the speed combined with the compression. So I'm not too sure how much hills I was doing, but just for the runner in general, if you're running uphill, sometimes it's with a lot of force, but the act of just trying to um, climb up an elevated terrain means that the hamstring goes under more compression because when you first place your foot down on the ground, if it's uphill, then the hip has more compression against the tendon. Um, you'll learn those in those earlier episodes. Uh, but with the triathlons, not only was I doing a lot more sprint work, but I was also doing a lot of cycling and a lot of hard cycling sessions. Then you got to get off the bike and you got to try and run essentially as fast as you can for four or five K. So just that was a huge, huge jump. And hence, this is why I developed the high hamstring tendinopathy. So make sure your body is ready and Make sure you're always incorporating some sort of speed in your workouts. So if I was training for my marathon, I would go back and do some speed work, uh, whether it's once a fortnight or just getting my tendons ready for some sort of speed because it just wasn't one of the buckets. I had the endurance bucket done. I think I had some sort of strength because I still was doing a lot of gym, but just that fast acting plyometric power base, I just wasn't implementing enough. And so that's why... Uh, I, I've decided uh, or I've come to the conclusion of why my hamstring flared up. So it's principle number one, just recognize the importance of speed and the impact that speed has. Number two is the, the uh, compression when you are rehabbing your high hamstring tendinopathy. Want to make sure that all of your strength exercises does start to introduce some level of compression and also recognize that it's fine to start doing your exercises into low levels of pain. And this is a, a mistake that a lot of runners have when it comes to a proximal hamstring tendinopathy. They make this mistake quite often is that one, they're too scared to uh, push into low levels of pain during their exercise. And two, they find that compress compression of the tendon is starting to flare them up. So they just avoid that altogether. And really this turned a corner in my own rehab because I was doing some strength work. I was doing my hamstring curls. I was doing some Swiss ball exercises, but it wasn't get the effectiveness of the rehab wasn't until I hit a really nice dosage sweet spot. And the sweet spot for me at that point in time, based on the strength that I had and the stability that tendon had was working heavier exercises was creating more pain during my exercises and I was doing those painful exercises more frequently. And I'll go into some exercises later in this episode, but the compression was really sparking up maybe a four or five out of 10 pain for me during that set. But I found during the second set, third set, fourth set, that pain was actually settling down and it was actually going down to a two or sometimes a, a one or two out of 10 pain. And so during my third and fourth set, I'd actually increase the weight or increase the range of movement or increase the speed so that I was pushing myself back up to that four out of five out of 10 pain. And that's where I really turned a, a corner in my rehab. And so this is where it comes into the education part of things and know that it's fine to load these tendons because a lot of people with proximal hamstring tendinopathy, they have a bit of anxiety and fear, like I was saying before. Some have a belief that their tendon might ha uh, undergo further damage or their tendon might snap if they overload it too much. 
it's calming down these fears and know that your tendons are actually so resilient and they're so strong. They're actually going to tolerate so much load. It might be a bit painful, but as long as it stays low levels of pain and the the symptoms are stable after the exercise and stable the next day, these are all signs that you're tolerating those loads really well. And then what the body does, the body adapts, the body gets stronger and you start to uh, kick up a gear. You start to kickstart that rehab process. So that would be a really nice trick for you and something that you can really implement really nicely once you have the right education, once you know that low levels of pain are okay and we're not trying to aim for zero level of pain during your exercises and making sure that they're stable afterwards and the next day. Tendon levels, um, like I think we talked about this last episode, we talked about the patella tendon and the pain levels. Um, so we can, we can move on. Now let's dive into my last lesson, which is actually coming up with some strength exercises um, that has really helped me. So let me just scroll down on my page. So exercises that really helped me during my rehab. One being um, the speed, all those sort of things. One that I really, really liked doing was hip, what I call hip dips. They're kind of like most people understand what Nordic hamstring curls are. You're on your knees you have your feet or you have your heels locked into place with something. Sometimes people like to tuck it under their bed or couch or something. And then upright on your knees, you're lowering your body as slowly and controlled as you can. That's what a standard Nordic curl is. But what I like to do is have that same starting position, hands on hips, and you just dip forward keeping, and all you do is dip forward at the hips. And what that does is eccentrically load the hamstrings, but also eccentrically loads the hamstrings into compression. So we're getting the body to tolerate higher levels of compression and we're eccentrically loading the hamstrings, which is what's required for running. So it does a a lot of really nice things. Um, Deadlifts and single leg deadlifts were a really nice introduction into my program because it follows a very similar trait. It has the eccentric component and eccentric into, um, into compression. So that really, really helped me. I started off slow. I started off with really reduced ranges of movement, but then progressed so that I was lifting heavier and I was doing faster speed work. So I was slowly going down that deadlift action, but then I was quickly coming back up. So incorporating a little bit more power. And then once I was able to tolerate the compression, once I had really good adequate levels of strength, once everything was really stable and symptoms were starting to calm down, I started to do more and more power-based exercises. So you might've seen on Instagram, I um, released this a couple of weeks ago, uh, wall balls where I've just got this really heavy medicine ball and I squat down and on my up phase of the squat, I um, throw the ball up against the wall. It hits the wall, comes back and I catch it um, in a half squat, sort of come down to the full squat and then launch myself back up throw the ball up. So we're sort of just catching and releasing this ball high up on the wall and doing squats in between. So we're compressing that tendon and we're producing a lot of force uh, in the upward direction. And once I was able to tolerate that, you know, running is pretty easy after that. Um, Jumping rocket jumps. I'm not too sure if people are familiar with rocket jumps, but if you have a step or if you have a box, you're putting one foot up on that box, that's your starting position. And then you're just launching yourself into the air Um, 
from that elevated position and then coming back down. I think I've got a couple of Instagram videos on that one, but you can just YouTube rocket jumps. Um, so that's what I've done. I've slowly built up my strength. Then I've slowly started to increase the level of compression. Then I've started to increase my levels of speed. And I was just listening to another podcast uh, where Tom Goom was a, um, was a guest and he was talking about his paper on proximal hamstring tendinopathy. And he said that if he was to rewrite that whole paper, one thing that he would add is that proximal hamstring tendinopathy requires like three types of exercises. One being knee flexion. So that would be some prone hamstring curls or just if you lie on your stomach, you have a band around your ankles or ankle weight and you just curl your ankle towards your hips. That's just a standard like knee flexion exercise. That would be one type of exercise. The, the other would be the hamstrings working into hip extension because that's also what the hips do. So doing some variation of bridges, single leg bridges, uh, bridges with the feet on a Swiss ball, um, those sort of things. And then the other being eccentric. So that would be what I was talking about with deadlifts or those hip dips, those Nordic hip dips. So those are the three that Tom Goom would recommend that every rehab needs to have, but you need to know that your hamstrings can tolerate it. And that all goes with, you know, what dosage, um, how many sets, how many reps, how much rest in between, all those would just depend on the individual. So a bit of recap, let me scroll back up because <laughs> I've got all these. Okay. Number one for the lessons that I've learned, recognize the impact that speed has when you start to implement some sort of speed or hill repeats, those sort of things. I want to make sure that we're slowly adapting. Number two, we want to rehab into compression. And we also don't mind if that's low levels of pain during that exercise. We definitely don't want to aim for zero um, or pain-free exercises. And the third, just those exercises that have helped me, those Nordic hip dips, deadlifts, single leg deadlifts, and then progressing into wall balls, jumping, rocket jumps, uh, all those power-based exercises. So that's what I have for you today. High hamstring tendinopathy. Hopefully we're, we've covered a lot. Um, hopefully you've learned a lot. If it's kind of gone over your head a little bit, you're not too sure why a hamstring um, flares up or what this whole compression thing is all about, please go back to um, those episodes that I listed before. So episode 21, 22, 23, and 33. Hope you enjoyed. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.